You're listening to WHTT Speaks Out. Each week, Chuck Carlson and members of We Hold These Truths look into events that are, for the most part, ignored or overlooked by the mainstream media. And we analyze these events to get free and periodic updates to this program and our other interesting programs. Be sure to enter your email address in the subscribe to WHTT box on the right side of our website, WHTT.org. And now, ready, set, let the sparks fly. In today's WHTT Speaks Out, we're very fortunate to have what I would call not your typical American housewife. Janice Courtcamp is quite unique and just by really something, I think a divine coincidence actually, she found uh, our website and made a nice comment about our work here at We Hold These Truths. And we find out that Janice has been to Syria in the last several years doing fact-finding as an independent journalist. And so what she has learned in preparation for their trips over there and the interviews that she's had with a variety of people to me is just is amazing. So we're just so fortunate that Janice is here and I'm going to have Chuck do a little more formal introduction. And, of course, we want to find out from Janice how she got in, interested in this <laughs> and uh, what motivated her. So welcome, Janice, and I'll, I'm going to turn this over to, to Chuck. Thank oh, you so much. Yes, Janice, thank you for being here and for what you're doing. Uh, we have been writing about Syria for some time, but none of us have set foot in the place. Tom and I have been to Israel and Palestine and spent time there and had our own experiences which were very gratifying and gave us an opportunity to talk about Gaza and to talk about the West Bank from our own perspective. But what you've done in Syria is so unique because it's thought of as a total war zone and for somebody's wife to go there and by herself and stay there as you have done is just amazing. Now, in our background, in June of 2017, we posted an audio discussion, which we called the U.S. Supra-Gov, Syria Policy is Clear but Evil. And in it, we said that the United States has a super government that's above our government that we don't see and recognize. They're the ones who are really running things. And so uh, we don't need to, to try to place the blame on any particular politician. But in this article, we quoted General Smedley Butler, who yeah. died in 1940, but who was a remarkable man. And he wrote a book called War is a Racket. And in it, he said that all of his military career was pretty much involved in keeping peace in places where businessmen's interest was being protected. And yeah. this is... Uh, Part of what's going on, this is what we see going on in Syria, and, and, and we assumed the moment we saw ISIS that there was something wrong with ISIS, that it was not a legitimate uprising of the Syrian people trying to change their government or do anything like that, but that it was a movement that was being coordinated in order to control the vast oil fields of the Middle East. And in yeah. fact, we have for years written that the oil fields of the Middle East have been a target of this supra-government forever. It's back in World War II days, it was discovered that 
all this oil was necessary to even fight World War II. And there was a big fight over the oil in the Middle East then, and the, the African campaigns were where the war was quickly won, by getting control of the oil. And ever since then, of course, we've recognized that the super government and its super businessmen and its super bankers have been busily engaged in getting control of the Middle East one country at a time. Uh, so we've seen this scheme carried out. Well, the innocent American people somehow think this is a natural phenomena based upon Muslims being hard to deal with, hateful, and therefore evil. We wrap our mission around the notion that if this is ever going to be brought under control, the conscious and concerned people who call themselves Christians in America have to be involved. They have to actually believe and see that what's happening in the Middle East, in Syria, in Iran, in Iraq, is an evil force designed to control what Smedley Butler called the business interests. And so we've been doing this for a long time, but what you're doing is so unique because you are a housewife, perhaps, but a very special one. You're off taking this, what people think would be impossible risk upon yourself and making multiple trips to Syria in the heart of what's thought of as the war zone. And then you come back to talk about it and you take people with you. So your movement is so unique and it's so important because you answer the question that we haven't been able to answer what are the Syrian people really like? What is it they want? What are they trying to accomplish? How is it to be a neighbor of the Syrian people? And you apparently have those ability to convey that. And we see in the long run that winning this war against evil is going to involve getting those church people in the United States back into saying we are responsible. We, uh, we must take positions. We must stand up for the lives of innocent people who are being pawns to a warring system over, let's say, oil. Let's just make it simple and say over oil. So we applaud your family for supporting you, I'm sure with much fear and pride for doing that and that you're doing this. And so we're going to ask you to start out by giving us an idea how you got started in this endeavor, on this effort, and uh, what it's like to go there by yourself and to meet the Syrian people, sometimes one-on-one -on -one with, without even a convoy, without a platoon or a battalion. You're, <laughs> so we want you to kind of tell us, Janice, what it's like. Well, thank you, and I'm delighted to be with you tonight. I started in 2012. I've always been interested in history. I study archaeology, anthropology, etc., but I did not know much about the Middle East. But in 2012, after Colonel Gaddafi was so brutally tortured and murdered, I decided that it was time to kind of dig in a little bit and learn something about the Middle East and try to figure out what was happening there. Because the whole Arab Spring situation struck me as kind of fishy. Honestly, I thought it seemed too good to be true. And it, so it, it made me curious. At that time we were told President Bashar al-Assad would be next. And 
So up until that time, I wasn't smart like you guys and wise. I had believed all these lies and narratives that had gotten us into these various wars. I thought we were doing a good thing in Iraq and, you know, even in Libya, I still didn't know what was going on. But in my curiosity and my beginning research, I saw that President Assad had given an interview with RT, and this was in September of 2012. I watched it months or so later. And I was shocked that it wasn't about two or three minutes into that interview. And I'm watching this guy and I'm listening to him and I'm thinking, I think he's telling the truth. And he presented uh, his case very uh, articulately, very precisely. And he presented many points that could be researched. And I just felt like if this is a guy that we can't get along with in the Middle East, I'm missing something. You know, either he's a total psychopath or something else is going on. And so it kind of made me immediately obsessed. And my poor husband and kids will tell you that from that point on, literally just about all day, every single day for the last five and a half years, I've researched the Middle East, researched Syria. But there was one thing that he said in that interview that struck me in a different way. You know, they were asking him why he doesn't just leave. And he said, look, anybody can be president, but I was born in Syria and I'll die in Syria. And it made me curious about the country itself. And so I didn't just research the political, military, all that stuff, but I researched the history and culture and society and the geography and the animals (laughs) there and the food and all of that kind of thing and absolutely fell in love with the country. It's a beautiful, spectacular place. It's very similar, I would say, to Southern California, big mountains, beautiful beaches, fertile valleys and hills. There is a lot of desert there, but there are rivers, and the desert is beautiful also. So it's beautiful. The culture is very deep. I mean, Syria is one of the ancient entities. It's the Aram of the Bible. It goes back thousands and thousands of years. Damascus and Aleppo, the two major cities, are the oldest continuously inhabited cities in the world. And so this Syria has been a civilization as long as there have been civilizations. And it's a fascinating place with amazing history. And so as I was studying all of this, I realized that online I could actually reach out to Syrians and through Facebook, etc., and just say, you know, what do you all think? What's going on in your country? And at first I was talking to all the sides and getting all of the stories and everything, but one thing really was very strong. The people that were supporting this so-called revolution all spoke in like kind of canned phrases. They weren't able to back up what they were saying with proof that I felt was legitimate. And they tended to get kind of nasty oftentimes, foul language, etc. Or they were just harping on one thing, you know, we can't have President Assad in power, you know, etc., etc. But the people on the other side, who I'll just call loyalists to their country and who have supported the president and army, Uh, They were very different. They were very open to talk about all kinds of issues. They were providing one verifiable resource and proof after another. 
And there was just such a stark contrast between the people that I was talking with. And so I, I developed friendships with people as far as online friendships, very deep friendships. And after four years of this, of just spending thousands of hours, long hours on the phone, etc., I felt I knew enough about the culture and society to feel safe over there, but that I had to go and see if what I was learning really matched reality on the ground. And that's when I decided to go. And, you know, the sad part for me is so few Americans know anything whatsoever about Syria. It's a secular country. It's a secular constitution. All religions are not just protected there, but they're respected. And there is an amazing level and a beautiful level of Christians and Muslims being best friends, the Muslims going with their Christian friends to Christmas and Easter services, and the Christian friends putting on iftar meals during Ramadan for their Muslim friends. There's atheists and Buddhists and everything else in Syria. And, of course, hundreds of churches, I don't know what the actual count is, but of every major denomination, whether it's Eastern Orthodox and and all of that family, or Catholic or Protestant, they're all there in Syria. And, of course, the majority are Sunni, and then you have the Alawites and Shiites and Druze, etc. But there was just a tremendous amount of cooperation and mutual respect and affection. Women have basically equal rights in Syria. I just wear my jeans and T-shirt. You can see girls walking in mini dresses and high heels, and they'll be arm-in-arm with their dear friend who has a hijab on. The vice president is a woman. They're in every aspect of every level of society. And it was, before the war, the fifth safest country in the world, according to Gallup polls. President Bashar was the most popular Arab leader, according to a poll that the U.S. did in, in the region. So all of this never has been mentioned in Western media at all. And so people think of Syria as this bombed-out war zone. In fact, if I took you to Damascus or to a big part of Aleppo or half of Homs or Latakia or what have you, you'd be sitting there in a bar or a club or a cafe, life going by, you know, people going to work, etc. <laughs> a lot of it is left, a lot of it is beautiful, and it's still a wonderful place to visit, believe it or not. Janice, how hard is it to get into Syria? It is difficult now. Before the war, they were very open. They were getting millions of visitors every year. But now, because there has been so much betrayal, you know, first, because it's, it was dangerous, and second, because a lot of people going in were spies and infiltrators and terrorists. So it's difficult right now to get a visa, but that is starting to ease up, and the desire on their part is to reopen the tourist industry again and have people come in. So I work very hard in getting the visas for the groups that I bring in. Everybody that I've brought in can't wait to go back. Some of us cry when we leave because not only is the country beautiful, but the people are even more so. I mean, I have traveled throughout countries that have a hospitality culture. Syria blows them away exponentially. For example, I was admiring a a lady's pair of shoes. She had a beautiful gold pair of shoes on, and I said, wow, those are lovely pumps. You know, they're high heel shoes. And she was going to give them to me (laughs) right there on the spot. And I was so thankful to have big American-sized feet that I couldn't possibly fit into her beautiful shoes. 
but the people are fabulous. I don't think you can find a more gracious uh, group of people on the planet. So hopefully tourism will open up again very soon. I'm hoping in this year or next year. Can you give us a little idea about ISIS, at least a little summary of this very big issue? Because the American people have been led to think that ISIS is uh, the democratic part of Syria, and they're busy trying to get uh, rid of uh, Bashar al-Assad, and <laughs> that he's the bad guy and ISIS is the good guy. Uh, can you tell us uh, a little more what you know about that, or if you've had any contact with anybody who you think might be ISIS? We've written several sure. stories about ISIS, and we've always had to say, we don't know who these people are. We can't imagine how this happened, but we do see it as a gang that's put up and supported, probably indirectly, by our own government. As a matter of fact, ISIS, of course, was incubated in what was called our Camp Buka prison system in Iraq. And Camp Buka consisted of 10 different levels. And at the lower levels, it, it was a typical... USPOW kind of camp, but at the upper levels is where we concentrated all of the most radical, violent elements and people. And for example, if any of the guards spoke Arabic, they weren't allowed to guard the upper levels. So they could, uh. none of the guards knew what was going on. But literally, if a prisoner was acting up in the lower levels, they would get sent to the upper levels so that the men in the prison could experiment with different ways of killing them. Oh. And, I mean, it, you, you probably know about the Abu Ghraib prison yeah. system and the atrocities there. Well, I think that at the high levels of Kambuka was even far worse. And this is where the ISIS leadership kind of networked together. And then, of course, we released Baghdadi, from Kambuka and other ISIS leaders. And then, you know, kind of miraculously after our troops pulled out, then this group rose in strength, took over Mosul, got all of those weapons, went all across open desert in these vast convoys that somehow our satellites missed. And they proceeded to Raqqa and other areas of Deir Azor. And at that time, in 2012, is when General Michael Flynn wrote his report from the Defense Intelligence Agency to Obama that all of these so-called rebel groups were dominated by the Muslim Brotherhood, Al-Qaeda, and this IS group from Iraq, and that their intention was to set up a Wahhabi Salafist Caliphate in the northeastern part of Syria. And he said in an interview that at that time the Obama administration made a willful decision to treat ISIS as an asset. And this is what we actually saw through those early years of ISIS was the U.S. coalition never hit the vast, huge oil convoys, massive convoys of of trucks going across the desert up to Turkey and that provided the income stream for ISIS. There was a report from a group in England that was in Iraq and in uh, Kobani and they saw how much of these captured ISIS weapon arsenals they could trace through the US and Saudi Arabia to ISIS 
And then the most critical piece of evidence we have is John Kerry himself, WikiLeaks, re released an audio tape of John Kerry talking to some of the opposition figures. And he said, you know, we were watching ISIS grow. We were watching this happen. We wanted them to put pressure on President Assad. They were getting closer to Damascus, that he would be forced to negotiate or probably to just give up completely. And that's when President Assad went to Putin and Russia came in militarily against ISIS. And that, I mean, from his own lips, the Secretary of State was saying that our coalition was not fighting ISIS, that we were watching them grow and that we wanted to use them to put pressure on President Assad. So it's, it's a dismal, horrific state of affairs. Well, I have many stories to share. First and foremost is to understand that most of the Syrian people, and when I say that, I'm probably talking 75 or 80% of the people in Syria either call all of these rebel group terrorists or they call them all ISIS. They call them all Daesh, which is the Arabic term for ISIS because every single one of these groups has been chopping heads, kidnapping, raping, looting, torturing, massacring villages, committing the most horrific atrocities. So we focus on ISIS because ISIS beheaded two of our guys, James Foley and Stephen Sotloff, etc. What was different about ISIS, number one, is, of course, they're terrible terrorist groups, but they were more organized and had more money probably than the even al-Qaeda in Syria. And they had some pretty substantial weaponry. And so they were very powerful, very organized, and you know made life a living hell in Deir ez-Zor and the areas that they occupied. But Really, as far as the Syrian people are concerned, more people have been killed and put in danger by al-Nusra, which is al-Qaeda, and the other terrorist groups there. So we tend to focus on ISIS because that's what we've heard in the news. ISIS is pretty much destroyed. There are a few remaining bands here and there that the Syrians and the Russians and Hezbollah and Iran could finish them off themselves. But there have been 100,000 to 200,000 terrorists related to al-Qaeda and sharing that same ideology that have really been making life beyond anything you can imagine for the people of Syria. I could, I could tell you stories that would, you probably couldn't even put on the air. Who do the people of Syria think are supporting or funding these organizations? How do they feel about the Americans over there? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, first off, it's not any kind of Iron Curtain country. They have full access to all of the Internet. When you go there, there's, a, you know, 150 channels. They can wa they're watching BBC and CNN and Fox News, and they listen to the White House briefings and all of these things. They're fully aware of what has been said outside in, the, in America and Europe, for example, and all over the world. The Syrian people that I have encountered, which are from every people group, every religion in all the populated areas of Syria, they usually will say this, that they love Americans, and they mean that. They love Americans, but they hate 
our governments. And they think of Americans as good-willed people. They like our humor. But they hate the way that our government continues to try to control their country and control the region and all of these wars, etc. I mean, we tried, the CIA tried their first coup there in 1949. So wherever I go, as a matter of fact, I'm always greeted with, you are most welcome in Syria, and people are inviting me to their homes and wanting me to have coffee and tea or a meal or go to their village and meet their families, etc. I mean, they're just amazing. But they are very clear who is behind this. They know that the U.S. and allies orchestrated this terrorist revolution to take over control of their country. They're very clear on that, and that is, in fact, the case. And that is a very bitter thing for them because Syria never threatened the U.S., has never been a threat to the U.S., and, it, and very clearly wanted you know, good, mutual, mutually respectful and beneficial relations. And we just threw that all away and unleashed hell on them. And it's very, very hard for them to understand how we could be capable of this level of evil, really. Do they then view Russia as um, a way out of the problem with the U.S.? Or how how do they feel about the Russians? Because we now are getting very close alliances being forced upon Syria and Iran. Yes as a result of our actions over there. Uh, and of course, Russia has stepped into the gap and befriended them. So have you heard discussions about the Russian influence? Have you met any Russians over there? Yes, I have met Russians over there. Uh, they're very professional and very Russian. I mean, kind of what you would imagine, you know, I had a group of Russians in the hotel with me one night and they were all sitting there drinking vodka and telling loud stories and, you know, it was great. But they're very thankful for the Russian involvement. The vetoes at the UN Security Council were huge, so that there could not be some kind of mandate from the UN to do another Iraq-style madness. And they're thankful for the military help. It was a very dark time when Russia came in, very scary with uh, ISIS and Al-Qaeda both being very strong at that time. Syria has no desire to be a proxy of Russia or a client state, or anything like that. And I think Putin has done a very good job, although he wants business deals with the oil and all that stuff, and the base in Tartus, he has no interest in having a permanent kind of military occupation control over the country. Same with Iran. And in fact, people here hear about Hezbollah being this terrible terrorist organization, but Hezbollah fighters have died saving Christians in Syria, and Hezbollah is very well respected there. The fighters have been tremendous. They have, have, I mean, they have saved so many villages, and Christian villages included, and have been a super professional organization there. Iran Their military commanders have been invaluable, particularly in some of these huge fights like in Aleppo and Deir ez-Zor against ISIS. So, you know, the Syrians have good allies in those countries, 
And I have no doubt that neither of them have any intention of being in a quagmire or permanently occupying or whatever. That's my take on it. How about your connections with Christians and Christian leaders there? Have you had chances to go into Orthodox churches, Catholic churches, other Christian churches and meet with and talk to Christians in leadership positions? And what do they say about all of this? This is really mind-boggling to me. I've met with patriarchs of the churches. I've met with Mother Agnes, who's a nun there. She has a, a convent there, but she's been involved in doing a lot of the negotiations for release of kidnapped victims and things. She's an amazing woman. Pastor Ibrahim in Aleppo, whose church, the Aleppo Evangelical Bible College, was bombed by U.S.-backed moderate rebels in 2012. He made a 10-minute-long video plea to President Obama to please end support for these terrorists. Of course, it fell on deaf ears. He's another amazing man. I met a Flemish priest there, Father Daniel, who's in a monastery near Aleppo, and he's been living there throughout the whole war, and they were surrounded by terrorists. And if it wasn't for the Syrian army and and the Russians, they would have been massacred. So I've met with lay people and leadership around Syria, and they're all very clear. You know, one thing that people misunderstand, they think, oh, you're going there and you're getting directed around by the government and blah, blah, blah. Oftentimes I'm on my own with my friend. Oftentimes these are random encounters. But most importantly, Syrians are very open and they'll talk all day long about problems in the country, et cetera. But they are all very clear that they support their leader and their army against these terrorist hordes that have targeted Christians for death or relocation and slaughtered Sunnis as well. And this is really a classic case of civilization versus barbarism. And this is what really hits you when you go, is you've got this civilization where at the Damascus Opera House at the Easter season, they'll have a He is Risen concert that's attended by Muslims, Christians, atheists, everybody. But in rebel-held areas, there aren't any Christians. They've all been driven out or killed. If a few of them have survived, they're terribly persecuted and abused. We think here that there's an appearance being made of uh, Muslims hating Christians for the purpose of turning Christians against Syria and Iran and other Islamic countries. In other words, the support of Christian Zionism comes from uh, making Christian Zionists think that they're being persecuted by Muslims. Exactly. Uh, Do you think that that goes on in Syria as well, that they actually kill Christians on purpose to create the illusion that that the Syrian government is doing it? Here, we would be pretty much allowed to believe that if a Christian was killed, it would be because of some Muslim force coming from the Syrian government. Fascinating. Yes, you know, of course, President Assad met with a group of Christian youth and told them that there is no Syria without Christians, that Christians are not migrating birds, <laughs> you know, that, that, that 
they are Syria. And the reality on the ground is that thousands and thousands and thousands of Muslim soldiers have died protecting Christian areas there. And they'll tell you that if there's a Muslim area, you know, under threat and a Christian area, most likely they're going to all go and protect the Christian area because the secular society is very, very important to the Syrian people. That is what they want and that is what they support. It is a, such a terrible fallacy that's being told here because the reality is, in general, in the Middle East and everywhere, it's exponentially more Muslims dying from terrorists, of both Sunni and Shia, and exponentially more Muslims fighting against terrorism than any other group. This is who is fighting terrorism. This is who is dying against terrorism. And so people in America in particular, and particularly Christian Zionists here, are utterly brainwashed and ignorant of basic facts like this. And the Christians in Syria will tell you, don't save the Christians here. In other words, don't rescue them out of Syria. But save civilization here. Save Christianity here. Save our love of education here. You know, it was 100% virtually literacy rate before the war. So what they want is for their civilization that has this mutual respect and love amongst the religions to be saved. Does that make sense? Yes, it does to me. Janice, you take small groups. This is remarkable because, of course, what we all need is more witnesses. And what your, your story is so clear. And, of course, we had really figured it out. And you haven't said a thing tonight that surprises us, even though we haven't been there. But to the average American person, they're going to, they're going to have trouble believing you really exist. Um, <laughs> but we know you do. We see this as the very key to the civilization we live in. We have come to the place now where we, where we are a threat to our own civilization. We've betrayed so many of the principles of, of Americanism, of the American idea, the things that shocked General Butler to the point where he denounced his own career after yeah. he retired because of the things he was forced to do. And uh, this superpower above us that powers down and, and swings control over our government and the, the very importance of just a few people, the educated one person here and there, is so incredibly important because when we do finally come to a possibility of winning, it's going to depend upon a very few people who do know the truth and who become credible at that moment because everyone else loses their credibility. And we are fast approaching the place for almost everybody in government, from the president on down, is quickly losing his credibility. And people yeah. just don't have a place to look. So we're really appreciative of what you've done, what you're doing. We wonder if you have any closing thoughts to wrap this uh, tape up. Sure. Well, one of the things that impressed me about the work that you all are doing, first, your heart for Gaza and the, and the Palestinian people, thank you so much for that. We have been infected by militarism, Zionism, lots of isms, but those two particularly here in this country have turned particularly 
strong Christians into war-loving, war-drum-beating force. And in fact, you know, the Christian evangelicals who support these wars are the largest single group that support these wars most passionately. And so this should be an obvious red flag to people. The peace movement is across the board, all religions, no religion, all political parties, etc. And I love that. But I'm bitterly disappointed that the Christians here are just, for the most part, have just been so blinded by militarism disguised as patriotism and by the Zionist movement within the church. And these are things that we really have to look at. We have to pull the log out of our eyes. We have to address this frankly and with facts and truth. And this is what you guys are doing. This is one of the things that I'm trying to do. And just a final word, everything that you've seen on the news about Syria, turn it 180 degrees and you will be much closer to reality than you are at this moment. And I just thank anybody that has some kind of interest. You can follow me on Facebook. You can watch the YouTube video or what have you. I'm always open for questions. I'll answer everybody's questions. And I'm not telling anybody to believe me, but just ask questions. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcast. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also, at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small. Think big and press on towards the straight gate.